Good morning, friends. I want to say welcome. Welcome to Vernonia Church and our online teaching time. My name is Sam. I'm the pastor here at Vernonia Church. And in just a few moments, I'm excited because we're going to dive in together to this teaching series where we're talking about Esther, the book of Esther, and living a life in exile, living a life in a place when we're waiting to go home to a better place. Well, that sounds like something that should be familiar and a familiar idea to every Christian. Well, we've been talking about how to do that. And one of the things we're going to see this morning in our teaching is that we are called to live with a higher calling. And it's going to be a great day. Before we do anything, I want to encourage you. It would really help out the growth of our online teaching time. If you would uh, click the like button, if you would click the share button, if you would click the uh, subscribe and, and click the sub notification bell and do all the things that we do with our, with our different channels, the different things that we're interested in that we want to see grow. And, and this is something, this is an opportunity for you to help us get the message of Christ out to our community, out to our friends, out to the world, really. And so uh, what an opportunity just by clicking those things, you can help us uh, help us grow in our outreach. Well, that said, I want to also encourage you, uh, if you're just joining us here for the first time, or if you've been joining us regularly, I'd like to encourage you hit the link below that will help you uh, fill out a connection card. There's a link there where you can hit it and you can let us know that you're here so that we could be praying for you. I've been praying through all the connection cards, whether in person or online that we receive every week. That's one of the ways that I use them to pray for you individually. And so many of you have been filling them out and I've been praying for you every week and we'll continue to pray for you. I'd love to be praying for you. So be sure to fill out one of those connection cards. Well, let's go to God in prayer together before we just dive into this teaching. Uh, let's pray. I'd like to pray for you. I'd like to pray that God blesses you. I'd like to pray that God helps you take a hold of the identity that and the calling that he wants you to take a hold of. Well, let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have called us to something greater, something better, something bigger than ourselves, than anything that this world can offer. God, we thank you that Jesus Christ has come to sacrifice himself to give his life for us in order to bring us to a place where we can know uh, our, our, ourselves and our identity in you, uh, that, that we could know that you, our creator, loves us, wants to show grace to us, wants to claim us as, as a member of your household, as, as a member of your family. God, so often in this world, we pick up identities and, and we pick up callings all around. We create them, we find them, other people give them to us, and, and God, they always fall short. But God, may we take a hold of the calling you have on us. And I pray that this morning we would be encouraged and challenged and blessed and moved towards taking a hold of the identity you have for us more. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Everybody said together, amen. <clears throat> well, let's dive into this teaching this morning. And, and to begin, I'd like to encourage you to just walk down memory lane 
with me. I don't know how old you are. Uh, I don't know how old everyone is that's joining us here, but I'm assuming for many of you, this is sort of a memory lane type experience. I'd like to have you go way back to when you were a kid. You're a little kid. What were you when you were that little kid running around the house? Were you the cute one? Were you the chubby one? Were you the the skinny one? Were you the funny one, the emotional one, the huggy one, the independent one? What were you when you were that little kid? Uh, were you maybe the goofy and the stupid one or the moody one or the destructive one? Or were you the sweet and innocent one? Or maybe you were the terror. You know, which one were you? Who were you when you were a, a little one? And, and, and as you kind of grew up as a, as a grade schooler, did you stay the same one or did you change, become a, a new one? Were you bullied or were you the bully? Were you picked on or, or were you the picker? You know, or maybe you were a bit of both. Who were you when you were in grade school as you were growing up? Did kids have a nickname for you that sort of became who everyone thought of you as or, or whatever? Everyone said about you. What were some of your nicknames when you were a kid? Uh, when, when I was a kid, I, I had a, a, a nickname. I remember I had this haircut that was kind of goofy. It was sort of this flat haircut with uh, with straight. And, and sometimes kids would say it looked like a fishbowl. And so sometimes kids would call me fishbowl when I was uh, in grade school. And, and sometimes kids would pick on me and they had this song about me my name is Sam and so they would they would sing Sam Sam uh, the milkman swinging on a rubber band along came Superman and stuffed him in a garbage can and man I, I don't have no clue who made that song up or where that song came from or or why that song was invented but but I know it and I still remember it today because I remember kids singing it to me when I was in grade school did they have a song for you did they have a nickname for for you did there was was there some way that they picked on you when uh when you were in grade school, and I don't know what Superman had against me, why he stuffed me in garbage cans, uh, and, and, and you know, maybe that's why I'm a, a DC, not a DC comic fan, I'm more of a Marvel fan, but I do like Superman, and so it makes me feel bad that he wants to stuff me in a garbage can, uh, but, but what an interesting thing, you know, to have as, as a childhood memory, who were you? What were your nicknames? Well, how did people think of you? And I'm guessing that there were some things that happened in your grade school years that you can still remember that have stayed with you. Uh, maybe they were good nicknames. Maybe they were bad nicknames. Maybe they affected the way that you saw yourself for the rest of your life. I mean, some of those things can, can happen and stay with you. Well, then you hit junior high. And junior high becomes this really awkward time where kids are trying to figure out who they are. They're trying to figure out what they fit in. They're trying to discover what group they should be a part of. And, and, and I want to take you there. Go back to junior high. Who were your friends? Were you hanging out with the smart kids, the book readers, and, and the grade getters? Were you hanging out with the athletic kids? And, and uh, you, were, you were playing sports. 
sports. You were sort of the the jock kid, and you were trying to trying to find yourself in sports. Or were you hanging out with the creative kids? You liked to get artsy. You liked to get creative. You liked to make things. Or maybe you were hanging out with the troubled kids and getting in trouble. Or or maybe you hung out with the kids that had low grade point averages, and uh, and you you just hung out with those kids. Maybe you gravitated towards a certain group of people who listened to the same music as you, had the same interest as you, played the same sports, or, or, or found the same hobbies as you had. Well, how did you choose your friends? And who were you choosing as your friends? And how did you dress? And did, were, were all the people that you hung out with dressing the same? Uh, ha- have you ever noticed that even the groups that say, well, we dress the way we want to dress because we want to be unique. But then you look at the group that's dressing that way and there's no uniqueness about them. They all look the same. Well, what group were you gravitating to? What group were you experimenting with when you were in junior high. Well, I had my feet in all kinds of circles when I was a kid. I I was a football player, and so I had athletic friends and hung out with athletes and and jocks, and and I loved to draw and do art and took a lot of art classes in school, and so I had artsy-fartsy friends is what I called them, And, and, and sometimes I was an angry kid and got in lots of trouble, and sometimes I was a destructive kid, and, and sometimes I hung out with the wrong crowd, and, and sometimes I was curious, and I tore everything apart, and, and I got in trouble for my curiosity, and, and I didn't go to church as a young kid, I, and so I was somewhat of a pagan kid with a foul mouth, and, and, uh, and my identity was forming in junior high. It was an identity filled with confusion. It was an identity filled with a question, where do I fit in, and, and who do I fit in with, and, and I have a feeling that most of us would say in those years, that was was sort of the identity struggle happening there. And, and then, uh, you know, when did you start dating? When did you start finding the opposite sex attractive? You know, you, you went from thinking of the opposite sex as having cooties to the day that you said, oh, uh, that girl doesn't have cooties. She's actually kind of pretty. And, and all of a sudden your ideas changed about, about the opposite sex. Well, I remember when I first started finding interest in girls that that I thought that all of a sudden this must be a part of a person's identity. You have to find a girl. You have to have a girlfriend. You have to. Otherwise, you're missing something, which, by the way, is foolish. It, it, only God can fill the gap in your life that uh, and complete you and complete your identity. But as a young person, I thought, oh, I have to have a girlfriend so that, uh, you know, I can be complete, so that I can have an identity. And I almost used that person to help me formulate my identity. Well, uh, that was an idea that was in my head. And then as I was going through high school, I started to discover that my identity was all wrong. Through a long course of conversations and a long long, uh, series and chain of events that happened in my life, I never had one defining moment that brought me to Christ. Christ, uh, but I did have many conversations and many moments and many things that sort of culminated in me saying, man, 
uh, I'm living for the wrong calling. I'm living for the wrong thing. And I realized that I needed forgiveness for my sins. I realized what a sinner I was. I realized that, that if I didn't say yes to Jesus, then my identity, my future, my calling was going to be all broken and it was going to take me down a path I didn't want to go. And then uh, through a long series of people praying and people trying to reach out to me, I finally made a decision to give my life to Christ and Jesus started to give me a new identity. I started to realize that there's a lot of people like me who don't know about Christ, who haven't made decisions about Christ. And so maybe God was calling me to share with others the message of Christ. And so that was sort of my story of how I started to pursue Christ. And I started to pursue a, a career as a pastor because I started to realize that there's a lot of people that needed what I desperately needed. Now, I'm not here to preach myself in my story, but if I'm going to ask you to go down memory lane, I, I ought to show you that I'm willing to go there too. And, and so where uh, have where were some of the identities that you took a hold of? Where did they start? You know, what what is it that you allowed to define you as you went through high school? And, and the reason we, we spend a little time through school and childhood is because a lot of our identity is formed in those years. Well, then your identity took a little bit of a turn, didn't it. You left high school and either got a job, went to college, or, or set a trajectory of your life in a certain direction, and that all of a sudden became your identity. It became who you were. It became how you identified yourself as. And, and as you went on and on, you, you would find that, uh, well, once you had kids, things changed again. All of a sudden, you have a new identity as a, as a parent, a father, a mother, and, uh, and now you have... You now, you have this question, you know, what is the identity of these children going to become? Who are these children going to become? And you, you also start to rethink your own identity because often what you will find is that your children will take your identity, they will amplify it and reflect it back to you, and you will see them doing things, saying things, and, and them being something and doing something, and, and maybe you don't like it, maybe it's frustrating, or maybe you you're inspired, but either way, what's happening is they're taking who you are, amplifying it, reflecting it back to you, and you go, do I like this identity that they're forming? Do I like who they're becoming? And, uh, and, and, and you just have this identity change that goes through, uh, goes, goes on in the process of raising kids. And, and then as life goes on, you become a grandparent. If life goes on, if you're lucky enough, you become a great grandparent and, and you will find your identity changing throughout your life or at least your perspective of your identity changing all throughout your life. Uh, but what I want to do this morning as we talk about identity, identity is, is this thing that you would use to describe how you perceive yourself, who you think you are, how you reveal yourself to other people, how you 
how you, uh, how you present yourself to other people, when you think of your reason for being, when you think of who it is that you are at your core, as you think of your purpose in life, as you answer the question, who am I, that's all wrapped up in your identity. And your view of your identity will come out in your self-image, in your self-esteem, in your conversations with other people, in, 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 in the way that you reflect yourself on social media. Who you see yourself is and who you, see other, who you want other people to see you as, that's your identity. And, and where do you see yourself fitting in the grand scheme of the world, in the grand scheme of, of all that happens? Where do you see yourself fitting in your family? Where do you see yourself fitting in your community? Where do you see yourself fitting in uh, your church? That's your identity. At, at least that's how you perceive your identity. And, and the truth is, how you perceive your identity is going to change everything for you. It's going to determine what you do, what you say. It's going to determine how you act. It will define everything about your life, the way that you see your identity. And you might be here today uh, thinking, boy, you've asked me to do a lot of thinking. You asked me to think about, uh, you know, who I was when I was a kid and who I was in high school and who I am today. And, and now you're asking me to define my identity. Man, you're asking some big things. Well, let me ask you this. Could you answer this question without really thinking hard about it, kind of give your initial reaction? Could you answer this question in three sentences or less? Uh, could you answer it and, and just spout something out? If someone comes up to you and they say, hey, tell me about yourself. Maybe you met someone new and they say, tell me about who you are. Tell me about yourself. Well, what are the immediate things that you'll probably say? Well, I'm just going to tell you that your immediate things, the, the first things that come to your mind, the things that are going to come out of your mouth, those are probably the strongest parts of your identity, the strongest parts of who you see yourself as. Uh, that's your identity. Well, this morning, as we talk about the idea of of living for a higher calling, we're going to use the word calling and identity sort of synonymously today. Because what we're going to find is that we will go through life trying to identify our calling and who we are, trying to identify as a person and where we fit in. We're going to try to find our identity, whether it's finding it as a kid and, and figuring out our nicknames or finding it in junior high and figuring out what groups we're part of, finding it in high school and, and, and discovering who, who we, we truly want to be. We're going to find that that we can let the world define our calling, we can let ourselves define our calling, or we can let our creator, the one who made us, reveal his calling on our life, his identity for us. Now, if there's anyone that has authority, anyone that, that should be defining our identity for us, it shouldn't be me, it shouldn't be you, it shouldn't be anybody else in our life that defines it for us. No, it, it should be our creator. He's the one who made us and he has a calling. He has an identity in store for you and me. Well, we'll 
Well, we're going to be turning to the book of Esther again, and we're going to see that Esther was a woman who, especially at the beginning of the book, is struggling with her identity. All throughout this book, it's almost as if piece by piece, bit by bit, Esther is going to discover, she's going to uncover, she's going to understand the calling, the identity that God has for her. Now, Esther is going to have two names at the very beginning of the book. Uh, She will will have the name Esther, and the name Esther is going to be her Persian name, and that's the name that we're going to know her as, and and that's the name that we're going to see her use or, or be referred to throughout most of the book. But we also saw at the very beginning, she had a Hebrew name. And her Hebrew name was Hadassah. And her Hebrew name would define her as one of God's people. Her Hebrew name would define her as as a worshiper of God, as a Hebrew, as one of the uh, people of God. But she she would spend most of the beginning of the book of Esther keeping that part of who she is under wraps. I mean, she was going to keep it secret. She was going to hide it. And and it seems like throughout the story, she will have this identity crisis. Is she going to be defined by the kingdom of God? Is she going to be defined as a Persian? Is she going to be defined by her name as a Persian, as, as a Persian queen? Or is she going to be defined as as, as a daughter of God? Well, she seems to have this identity crisis, and and is she going to identify in Xerxes, the king of Persia, or is she going to identify under Yahweh, who is the true king of kings? Is she going to disobey the Bible and, and, and keep disobeying the Bible, or will she begin to obey the Bible? Is she going to begin to disappoint the king by sometimes taking on the identity that God has for her and that God has created her? to live out? Or or is she going to disappoint the people around her and make some personal changes where she's going to obey the Lord? Well, something that up till chapter 5 in the book of Esther, the chapter we're going to turn to this morning, uh, some think that that up until then, she's really struggling with her identity. Sometimes she's a Hebrew, and she's Hadassah. Sometimes she's a Persian, and she's Esther. And how many of us, you know, to be honest with you, we can do kind of the same thing, can't we? I mean, we want to seek God, know God, and love God, and yet sometimes we're sort of like that. Sometimes we We're holy, and sometimes we're frankly unholy. Sometimes we act like Christians, and and then other times we, well, we frankly don't act like Christians. And sometimes we live for God, and we make choices to live for God, and and sometimes we don't. And, And sometimes we're generous, and sometimes we're greedy. Sometimes we live for ourselves, and and sometimes we live for Jesus. And we have sort of, at times, this conflicted identity. But now, we're going to see that Esther is going to come to a place where she has to make a choice. What is her identity really? Which one is she going to identify as? As, as one of God's or as a person of the world. Who is she going to be? And sometimes real pressure can sort of 
force a person to make a choice about who they're going to be, who they're going to live for, and what identity they're going to choose. Have you ever found that when a choice you make has a cost, that you're more committed to that choice? Well, sometimes what we will find is that when we really, truly choose to take on the identity God has for us, well, there's a cost to that, especially when you live in a place where that cost comes in the form of either uh, persecution or, or even mild persecution. Because when a person has to choose and, and make a choice that I'm going to live by the identity that God has for me, well, it makes it easier to stick with that choice. It makes it easier to go ahead and, and keep going forward with that choice. It creates a real choice. And sometimes I think that in, in our modern society, in modern day America, most Christians have never had to really make a choice where that choice was going to cost them something. But those of you who have made a choice and that choice did cost you, maybe it cost you a job, maybe it cost you a friendship, maybe it cost you a relationship in your family. Uh, I, I came from a place where when someone made a, a choice to, to give their life to Christ, there was often a cost in their family. There was often a cost for them to do it. And so because there was a cost to it, they were more apt to stick to it. And they they were more apt to claim it. And even here in Oregon, we live in a state, uh, we live in a, in a place that is known as a godless place, a place where uh, policy and, and governing often will go the way of the ungodly and, and often will, will, will see the principles and the morals and the ethics of a Christian as almost immoral, unethical, and uh, and the wrong kind of principles to live by. And it, there's a cost when you decide you're going to give your life to Christ and when you decide you're actually going to live that life. And when, it, when there's a cost, it, it sometimes forces you to say, well, am I in or am I out? Because if I'm in, there's a cost. If I'm out, well, there's a cost. But at least you're counting a cost. I one time had the chance to sit down with people who, who experienced what I would call real persecution. Uh, I had the chance to sit down with uh, three other pastors from America with some some Somali Christians, some of the only Somali Christians in the world. If you know anything about Somalia, Somalia was uh, entrenched in a civil war not long ago, and uh, it, it, it was uh, it was a country filled with Muslims who were very militant in their beliefs, and anyone who gives their life to Christ, anyone who proclaims Christ, who lives for Christ, would experience real and true persecution. And so we were in Ethiopia and we had the chance to meet with these Christians and we had the chance to share with these Christians. And, and we, we went through some time of Bible teaching and some time of prayer and some time of talking about how to reach Somali people for Christ. But one of the things that we did is we set aside a time to interview all of these Christians who had 
who had stories to tell about their personal persecution. And, and one of the stories that really stood out to me was this woman who had her arm hacked off by a machete because she wouldn't deny Christ, because she accepted Christ, became a Christian. Her friends and the people in her community hacked off her arm. And when you, when you think about someone who's, who's, knowing that their choice to live the identity God has for them is going to cost them so much and then makes that choice, you almost feel humbled. You almost feel like, man, what, what choice have I ever made? We interviewed many people with stories like that, with tears. I took lots of notes and wrote down the stories that I heard, and, and, and I was humbled. But at the same time, I was inspired. Because that woman had great faith, strong faith. And, and I think part of it was because she looked at her situation and she knew she had a choice to make. And if she chose to identify as one of God's, if she chose to be who, who God, was, God was declaring she was, if she chose to adhere to her calling and made that choice there, it would make a lot of the other choices of her life easier. And a lot of the choices of her life, she would have more boldness, more courage, and more strength. Because, man, she'd given up some things for Christ and for the decision that she made. Well, I don't know if you've ever had to make decisions. I don't know if you've ever had to choose your faith or your life or, or choose your faith or your job, your faith or your family, your faith or your boyfriend or girlfriend, your, your faith, or you fill in the blank there. When there's a cost, you know, you have a choice to make. And that choice is going to be something you're probably going to stick to. Well, Esther is going to be faced with a choice. Esther has, uh, well, she started out hiding who she was. She started out hiding it so well that even her new husband, after several years, doesn't know she's a Hebrew, doesn't know she worships God. Her, her cousin Mordecai told her to keep it secret, and so she has. She's kept it under wraps. But she's going to be forced to make a choice, forced to, to out herself, forced to say, am I, am I in with, with God or am I out with God? Am I in with the world or am I out with the world? Because what happens is, is we've come to the book of Esther and we've met this king named Xerxes. He's this pompous, arrogant, this self-worshipping, serving king. We, we won't go into too much detail about who he is, but we've seen that he's thrown parties. He divorced his wife, the queen, and sent her out of the kingdom, and he got sad, and he wanted to replace her, and so he ends up replacing her with Esther uh, through this long series of events. Well, then we met this guy who was a henchman. He's sort of the right-hand bad guy to King Xerxes. His name's Haman. And Haman decides that he hates Jews. He hates Hebrew people who worship God, who serve God, and who won't bow down to him and won't worship Xerxes as a god. 
And so Haman is just filled with anger and rage and hate and racism, and he wants to wipe out all the Jewish and Hebrew people of the kingdom of Persia, which we're talking millions of people, sort of like a Holocaust-style event. Only this event was supposed to happen on March 7th. Yes, they had a day and a time uh, planned out. He had, he had bribed King Xerxes. He had talked him into uh, setting aside a day to kill all of these people throughout all the kingdom. And the thing that helped him choose to, to do it or talk Xerxes into it was what he said in Esther chapter 3, verse 8. He said, these people keep themselves separate from everyone else. Their laws are different from those of any people, and they refuse to obey the laws of the king. In other words, these people keep themselves separate from the world. They don't engage in the things that that the world engages in. They're different than everybody else. They worship God differently. They worship a different God. They don't worship our gods. They don't have our values, our perspectives. They're just different. Let's get rid of them. And, and, and he says they obey other laws. Now, what that means is Mordecai, for example, obeys the law of God. And the law of God supersedes the law of man. And so when the law of man, when Xerxes issues a decree that everyone's supposed to bow down and worship Haman, Mordecai's not going to do it. He's going to refuse. He's going to obey God's law first. And the question is, as we think about our identity, could someone define you that way? I mean, really, they should if you're going to identify as one of God's people. Are you someone who's separate from everyone else? Are you living differently than the world around you? Are your laws different from the laws of other people? Do you obey God's law over any other law? Well, up to this point, Esther really couldn't say that she has been living differently. Not only has she not told anyone in the palace that she's a Hebrew, but, but, but she's been living the same way as all the people around her. So much so that her husband can't tell, and she's been married to him for several years at this point, and he has no clue. Although I wouldn't say that their relationship as, as king and queen was a close one, because before we hit chapter 5, we hear Esther say that, well, the king hasn't called on me in over a month, and I haven't seen him or spoken to him, and, and the king king was probably busy with all the other women in his harem. The, the king was probably just, you know, uh, having a good time in, in his palace in a place where there's not to be any sadness or mourning. And he's sitting on his throne. He's drinking his drinks. He's having a good time. He hasn't called Esther in over a month to come and be with him. And so they're not super close, but still there should be something, some, some idea, some... Something that would reveal Esther is different and nothing has happened because he doesn't know that she worships God. He doesn't know that she's a Hebrew. Well, what we see, though, is as she discovers this plot that Haman has, as, as this plot becomes uncovered, she begins to struggle with her identity. Is she going to step in and do something? Because she's in a unique place. As the queen, she's in a unique place to talk to Xerxes, to save her people, and even, but this unique place requires 
requires her to out herself as one of them. It requires her to make a choice. There's going to be a cost here. And not only is the cost going to be that she's going to out herself, but the cost is also going to be that she's going to have to break a law to have a conversation with Xerxes about it. Uh, the law was that no one is supposed to uh, come and, and approach the throne of Xerxes uninvited. Uh, and, and she was going to have to come uninvited to Xerxes. And most of the time, when someone comes uninvited before Xerxes, they're killed by his elite soldiers that are always around him, surrounding him, and protecting him. And the only way that someone would be saved from being killed approaching Xerxes' throne is if he raises his golden scepter, telling his, his henchmen to back off. Well, obviously, that doesn't happen very often because Esther, in a conversation with Mordecai, says, I don't know if I sh could do this because, you know, every time someone approaches, the only way that uh, it doesn't go bad is if he raises the scepter. And, and it's almost as if he never does. And, and she starts to realize that if she outs herself, it might cost something. Now, it's not going to cause cost a relationship, a friendship, a job. It's not going to cost an arm. It could potentially cost her her life. Well, we see Esther have this moment where she says, Mordecai, pray. Get your friends to pray. Everybody fast and pray. And I'm going to have some of my friends fast and pray. And, and I'm going to finally go all in. And she says in Esther chapter 4, verse 16, Though it is against the law, I will go see the king. And then she resolves, If I must die, I must die. All of a sudden, Esther says, I'm all in. I'm all in. I finally am going to identify as God's. I'm going to identify as a child of God. I'm going to identify as the kingdom of God. I'm going to identify with the calling that God has on my life. And by the way, even though it costs something, the benefits far outweigh the cost. The benefits are she's serving the real true king of kings who is sovereign and who providentially is working in this world. She, she has the benefits of eternal life, that even though she might die in this world, there is an eternity on the other side and a heaven. And the King of Kings will take care of her and she'll trust in him. There, there are benefits. And, and just like Esther, who says, if I die, I must die. And she goes and, and she decides and she, she sets her heart towards possibly sacrificing her life to save her people. She does that and she becomes a picture of Jesus for us, doesn't she? Another reason the benefits far outweigh it. Because we see that God, who is the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, he, he sees that his people need salvation and forgiveness and that they we live in a broken world and and he comes in person in the person of Jesus Christ not only saying he would die for us but actually dying for us on a cross 
to give us hope of heaven, to give us life, to give us forgiveness, to give us grace. He is this God filled with graciousness and forgiveness. And, and he's this God full of compassion and love. And yet he's a just God who will, who will right all wrongs. And we come to him, the King of Kings, and, and we find that, well, I guess taking our identity in him is far outweighs any of the benefits of taking a hold of an identity in this world. So she says, if I, if I die, uh, if I must die, I must die. She chooses uh, a, a path. And now we pick up in chapter 5 and we see as she has been orchestrating and putting together a plan and how she's going to go about uh, reaching Xerxes and sharing the message of uh, a message, a plea for mercy, a plea for him to change the decree that he's put into place, that all the all the Hebrews were going to be killed. She's going to go sort of, uh, uh, sort of as an intercessor, someone going to Xerxes saying, please don't, you know, murder us all. Well, and he, and he doesn't even know she's one of them yet. Well, we, we go into Esther chapter 5, verses 1 to 14, and uh, we see, we begin here at, at the first verse. On the third day of the fast, uh, Esther was fasting, uh, Esther put on her royal robes, and she entered the inner court of the palace just across from the king's hall. She knew just how to work this king. Remember, this king was a king who wanted to see his last wife that he divorced, parade herself in her, in her crown and parade herself before her, his friends. Well, here she comes all dolled up in the royal robes with her crown on and, and she, she enters the inner court of the palace across from the king's hall. The king was sitting on his royal throne. He always seems to be there. He sits on his throne, his people carrying him around. He goes to war, he's sitting on a throne and they're carrying him around. He, he, he's in his inner court and he's sitting on his throne. He's just always hanging out on that throne and, and, uh, and he's sitting there facing the entrance. And when he saw Queen Esther standing there in the inner court, and, and here's this moment, this buildup, there's this tension at this moment. It's so easy to just read it without seeing the tension of this moment, the drama of this moment. Is the king going to raise his scepter? Is the king not going to? And, and his, his henchmen just going to wipe her out? What's going to happen here? Well, he sees her in the inner court and he welcomes her and he holds out his gold scepter to her and Esther approaches and she she touches the end of the scepter. God was with her. God's taking care of her. She's going to go through this story and do so many things that, that put her life in jeopardy. But she's finally decided she's all in with what God wants her to be and who God wants her to be. She's all in with her identity as a, as, as, as a person, as a daughter, as a person in the kingdom of God. Well, the king asks her, what do you want, Queen Esther? What is your request? He knows that she must have something super important to, well, to risk her life like this. What is it you want? I will give you even, 
I, I will I will give it to you even if it's half of the kingdom. And you never know which king you're going to be dealing with here. Now, when this king sits on his throne, he's probably, you know, a little bit buzzed on his royal wine. We see this guy loves his wine. He loves his parties and his feasts and and, and he loves to sit on his throne and, and, and drink. And, and he's here. Sometimes we see him in the book of Esther. He's He's angry drunk. He's belligerent drunk. He's abusive drunk. And he's divorcing his wife and, and kicking her out of the kingdom and making decrees as a as, as sort of a pig, uh, as someone who wants to serve himself and worship himself and demean women. We see him as angry, drunk, and belligerent drunk. We also see him as lovey-dovey drunk, you know. Oh, honey, why don't you come out and parade your beauty before us, he said to his last queen. And you never know which guy you're going to be encountering here. This guy was somewhat of a loose cannon. Well, here he's feeling generous. He's happy. He's lovey-dovey drunk. I'll give you everything, even up to half my kingdom. I don't know how he said it. That's how I picture it. And, uh, and Esther replies, if it pleases the king, now she's not just going to come out and blast him. She's not going to come out and get angry with him. He, she's not going to come out and, and be uh, belligerent with him. No, she, she knows how to deal with this king. She's wise about how she goes about it. If it pleases the king, let the king and Haman come today to the banquet I've prepared for the king. So she threw together a little lunch for everybody, you know, and, and I'd like you to come and, and have lunch and, and we'll talk there. Okay, so this king loves his banquets and he loves for the queen to parade herself before his friends and, and Haman's his, his, you know, his right-hand man. And so let's have lunch together. Well, the king turned to his attendants and he said, tell Haman to come quickly to the banquet as Esther has requested. And so the king and Haman went into Esther's banquet. And while they were drinking wine, this guy's always drinking wine. But while they were drinking wine, the king said to Esther, now tell me what you really want. Tell me what really is on your mind. What's your request? I, I know it wasn't just to have lunch. I, I will give it to you even if it's half of my kingdom. Well, Esther replied, this is my request and my deepest wish. If I have found favor with the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my request and do as I ask, please come with Haman tomorrow to the banquet I've prepared for you, and I will explain what this is all about. So Esther is sort of uh, buttering the king up. She, she's going about this kind of smartly. He loves his banquets. He loves his wine. He loves to get together. And, and here's what we're going to do. Uh, let's have another one. Let's, let's have another banquet where, where you both come again. And I'm just, I'm, I'll lay it out. I'll tell you tomorrow what it's all about. Well, Esther, we've seen her make a change. We've seen her decide she's going to be bold and boldly take a hold of the, of the identity God has for her. And it's almost as if Esther is going to leave an old life behind now. She's going to take a hold of this new identity 
that God has for her. This new identity is one of his, which, by the way, is something we do too as Christians. Jesus would teach Nicodemus that unless we're born again, we can't enter the kingdom of God. And he will tell us that when we believe in him, when we receive him, uh, when we receive his grace, that we become born again. It's like God makes us new. We, we need to leave an old life and take a hold of a brand new one. The Apostle Paul will use this idea of leaving an old life and letting an old life die and taking a hold of a, a new identity and a, and a new life. He will use it as a picture over and over again. And all through the New Testament, we'll see this idea. One time in the book of Romans, he's teaching us and he's teaching the church in Rome about how when we were baptized and when we repented, that we took a hold, we put to death an old life and we took a hold of a new life. And he said this to the church. He said, have you forgotten that when you were joined with Christ Jesus in baptism, we joined him in his death? And what he's talking about there is that we took the, the old identity that we had. Esther's Persian identity, Esther's identity with this world, or maybe your identity that you picked up as a kid and you've kept, or, or your identity that you picked up in junior high and you've kept, or your identity and your reputation that you picked up in high school and you've kept, and, and your identity that you've taken a hold of with your job. And, and, and basically what we see is we're taking all those things that we once used to identify ourselves as when we're taking all those things that have sort of been the defining things about us and we're putting those to death and we're taking a hold of a new identity in Christ when we were baptized and we joined Christ Jesus in baptism it's like we took all those identities those bad identities those worldly given identities those things that connect us with worldly ways, worldly principles, those things that gave us reputations that we thought we'd never be able to break or live out of, all of those things, it says that when we connected with Jesus, they died. That identity is dead. And sometimes Paul knows he has to remind Christians, have you forgotten that? And sometimes maybe we need him to say to us, have you forgotten that who you were is dead, should be dead, and should be gone? Have you forgotten that you should be taking hold of a different identity? I think sometimes what we do is we want a resurrection, not the resurrection of Jesus or the resurrection into heaven. Sometimes what happens is I think we as Christians put to death an old self and then we try to resurrect it again. Hey, come back. You know, I miss you a little bit. I, I'd like to take back that identity. I'd like you to come back, you know. And, and he says to us, have you forgotten that that was put to death on the cross? That's how serious Jesus saw getting rid of that identity was. And that's how serious Jesus was about giving you a new identity. 
And then Paul teaches in Colossians chapter 2, saying this, in Colossians 2, verse 20 to 23, he says, You have died with Christ, and he has set you free from the spiritual powers of this world. And so why do you keep following the rules? of this world. Now, what he's not saying is why do you keep obeying the laws like you're speeding? Uh, what, what, you know, why do you obey speeding laws? Why do you obey you know, the laws of your land? That's not what he means. What he means is why are you trying to follow the, the rules of, of the way the world works around you? Why are you Christians? Why are you going along with this gender neutrality stuff? Christians, why are you going along with confusion? about whether God created man and woman and he created them differently. Why are you confused and going along with the idea that, that homosexuality is, is okay and acceptable and, and, and not only that, but something to be proud of and something, something to celebrate? Why are you going along with ideas of the world and the rules and the laws of the world? You identify as someone completely different. That person, you've been set free from the rules of the world, the worldly ways and the worldly rules. Now, now I just mentioned those things as examples. They're not things that I just want to harp on and pounce on and, and make a big deal out of. But what I want you to hear is why are you going along with the principles and the morals and the, and the ideas of this fallen, broken, godless world? When you identify as one of God's. When you identify as someone who, well, you read his word and his word is truth. You follow his word and his word saves. And, and the apostle Paul will write in Colossians 2 that such rules are mere human teachings about things that deteriorate. These rules seem wise and pious, and disciplined, but they provide no value. And so Paul says, you've died. Take a hold of the identity God has for you. Why are you as a Christian, as a believer in the creator who saved you, who sacrificed his life to save you, why are you buying into the lies of evolution and teaching them to your children? Why are you going along with the ways and the thinking of this world about sexuality? Why are you sleeping around? Why are you uh, adhering to the rules of the world that says it's okay to shack up with a boyfriend or girlfriend and try before you buy? And, and why are you buying into a world that says marriage is defined by humanity instead of God? Why? Why are you going along with the rules of the world. They have no value, no eternal value. And they won't, they won't save you. And they only bring hardship and misery, which by the way, is what we're going to find happens with Haman. But here's the idea. Here's the idea before we move into the next part of this chapter. Here's the idea. Maybe it's time for you as a Christian to decide, to really decide that you're going to live Jesus' calling on your life. You're going to realize that he has a higher calling for you. 
It might cost you something to be different, to think differently. It might cost you something to not play anymore by the rules of this world, by the rules of our culture that is frankly fallen and continues to become more and more, well, what the Bible would call evil and wicked. Maybe it's time to start declaring your Christian faith, to identify as a Christian, not just in word or name, but in deed. Maybe it's time to start living a holy life when, and care about purity and goodness when we live in a world that doesn't. Maybe it's time to start believing and, and living by the Bible as God's actual word, rather than deciding you're going to maybe choose some and forget the rest. Maybe it's time to start believing and living well, different. Define your life. Live your life. Identify yourself by the Creator who gives you an identity. Whether it costs you something or not, maybe it's time to decide to take a hold of it. Whether it costs you a job, a friendship, a relationship, a temporary moment of happiness, or it costs us something more like an arm or maybe even our life, we decide to be bold and to say, I'm going to live. For a higher calling. Esther decides that she's going to find her calling in Christ. Esther 5 will continue and we're going to see the other side of, of the coin. We're going to see Haman now and, and he's ecstatic about this opportunity. Neither him nor Xerxes knows what's about to happen or how things are going to change. And, and, and he's excited He's, he's ecstatic about the idea that he's just had lunch with the queen and, and now he's invited to a banquet with the queen and, and he's going to be the honored guest at the banquet with Xerxes and the queen. And, and he's excited. We come to verse 9 in chapter 5 and it says, Haman was a happy man as he left the banquet. He, he was just filled up. But when he saw Mordecai sitting at the palace gate, not standing up or, or trembling nervously before him, Haman became furious. However, he restrained himself and he went home. Good for you, Haman. Well, then Haman gathered together his friends, Zeresh, his wife, and he boasted to them about his great wealth and his many children. And he bragged about the honors the king had given him and how he had been promoted all over all the nobles and officials. And then Haman added, and that's not all. Queen Esther invited only me and the king himself to be at a bank that she prepared for us and she invited me to dine with her and the king again tomorrow and then he added but all this is worth nothing as long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting there at the palace gate well so Haman's wife Zeresh and all his friends suggested set up a sharp pole that stands 75 feet tall. And in the morning, ask the king to impale Mordecai on it. When this is done, you can go on your merry way to the banquet with the king. And then this pleased Haman, and he ordered the pole set up. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I don't know if you know anyone who's like Haman. Well, Haman's a guy who 
loves his own glory. He's going to brag to everyone about his accomplishments and brag to everyone about what he knows and brag to everyone about his opportunities and brag to everyone about what he's done. He's a guy who loves power. He loves control. He loves recognition. He loves to be honored. And he just got all of this at this banquet. And now he's invited to another one. He's a happy man. He's going to go home and, and brag to all his friends about, about what a happy man he is and, and, and what an opportunity he has. And he is, as some might say, on cloud nine. Now, I don't know where cloud nine is, but I know when you're there, you're really happy. I, I remember when I grew up, they would say if, if someone was really happy, man, they were on cloud nine. Have you ever heard about cloud nine? I mean, it's where you're just filled with happiness and excitement and having a good time and and you see someone smiling ear from ear you go that guy he's on cloud nine i feel like cloud eight well it gets a bad rap i mean you never hear about cloud eight. I don't know what happens on cloud eight. I don't know how happy people are or sad people are on, on cloud eight. You never hear about it. You see someone pouting and you say, oh, not on cloud nine, are you? It's, is it cloud eight? Is that where you are? Well, Mordecai, he goes from cloud nine. He's excited and he walks out the door. And when he walks out the door, well, he goes down to eight. <laughs> he goes down a notch and maybe even lower. Oh, he sees Mordecai. I mean, this is the guy that ticked him off to begin with, that set this whole thing in motion where he decides that he's going to murder him and all the people like him. And he sees mourning Mordecai who won't bow down to him, who won't worship him. And he sees this guy who identifies himself as a follower of Jesus. And this guy, I mean, he's awful. He's fasting and he's praying for the salvation of his people. I mean, what a horrible thing to do. And what does Mordecai or what does Haman do when he sees this? He gets angry. It's interesting to me that that's the way the people of the world respond when they see people identifying themselves as God's people. And Jesus said, the world hated me. And well, what did the world do to Jesus? It crucified him. Because this world loves the darkness and hates the light. And, and Jesus told us, don't expect any more. When you follow me and you identify with me, there, there are all kinds of benefits, but there's a cost. And the cost is sometimes people will see that you pray. People will see that you love Jesus. You go to church and you worship and they're going to criticize that. They're going to get angry just because you're identifying with my calling on your life. Well, Mordecai, he's furious. And he comes up with an idea with his, his friends. I know what will make me feel better. Let's make a 75-foot pole and impale this guy on it. That'll bring me back to cloud nine. You know, that'll get me off cloud eight. Well, 
This guy just had the best day ever. And what happened? Well, he says, if you go back in the text, when he sees Mordecai, he says, all of this great day doesn't mean a thing. It's all worth nothing to me if I have to see Mordecai, if I have to see him. And that's what happens when you worship yourself. Haman is a picture of what happens when we live for all the identities that this world gives us. We might be happy one moment and then we're miserable the next. We're, we're happy one moment and then we fixate on the things that we are not getting, the, the identities we don't have, and, and it makes us frustrated and miserable and sad and angry. Well, I got to be honest, there are times where even I find myself doing this. I, I could have a great day and and then one thing goes wrong and it just sets me off. I, I could have a, a great day and 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 one thing can happen and 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 one thing can go wrong or or I can see one mistake or I can see a, 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 one one interaction with somebody that that isn't good and, and it could set me off for the rest of the day. But I think what we're seeing here is something a little bigger than that. We're seeing someone whose whole life is wrapped up in the world's identity, in, in their own identity, in their own self-worship. I mean, really, what, what we're seeing here is that this guy is a worshiper of himself. And when he doesn't have someone else worshiping him, or if there's someone who's not willing to worship him, well, he's going to go on a murderous uh, path murderous path that takes a 75 foot pike pole and and wants to impale someone on it well Haman takes it to the extreme but what this is all about is is idol worship he worshiped the things that made what he thought of as the good life you see him bragging and being excited about all those things he worshiped them I'm getting honored I'm I'm successful I have a great career path. Um, people like me and bow down to me and people like you sit before me as I brag and, and the queen is inviting me. I'm an important person. He, he's self-promoting and self-worshipping and, and he is interested in all the things that make life good. And then when there's one thing that, well, doesn't make life good, when, when there's one thing that doesn't go his way, he's extremely miserable. And you might remember how we talked about how living for this world really leaves you in misery. Idol worship leads to misery. And I just want to make sure as we talk about the difference between Esther and someone who decides to take a hold of the identity God has for her. And we compare her to Haman that in Haman we see a picture of someone who's not willing to let go of his worldly identity. And that worldly identity can become an idol for us. I'm not sure I can let go of my identity to take a hold of the identity of Christ. I'm not sure I can let go of some of my ideas or the ideas of this world in order to take a hold of the message of the gospel. I'm not sure I can let go of this identity. Well, that's idol worship. 
And, and even Christians need to be reminded to not engage in idol worship. And idol worship is where we let anything, anything can become an idol. It's where we let anything define us besides God. Idol worship is where we let anything take God's place in our life. And only God should hold the place to define us, to, to call us, to give us an identity. In, in, in John, First John 5, verse 21, the Apostle John is going to write, Dear children, keep away from anything that might take God's place in your hearts. Keep away from idols. Don't hold on to that idol of an identity that you're not willing to let go of. Let go of it. Be Esther and say, I'm going to be all in with the identity God has for me. And here's the good news in this, tucked away in this message, that no matter what identity you've been living for, whether that identity is a good identity that you're proud of, that maybe you need to let go of, because God has a better one for you. Or maybe you have an identity that you just can't seem to shake. An identity that uh, as a sinner, as a loser, as, as someone who's broken and, and can never win. Maybe it's time to let go of that identity. Let Jesus kill that identity on the cross. And take the new identity he has for you. You can make a change. That's the message this morning. Esther made a change. She finally said, I'm all in. And you can do the same. She decided to live for God and to see his will done in her life. She decided to identify by her faith and, and her service to Christ. And Jesus can forgive us. He offers us forgiveness for all the identities that we've taken a hold of that maybe we shouldn't have. And he died for us. In order to give us that forgiveness, not on a 75-foot pole, <laughs> but on a cross that he was crucified to. Mordecai wasn't going to forgive anybody for anything. But Jesus forgives us for everything. Jesus can forgive you. He wants to give you a new identity. One that will define you as a child of God. One that will define you as someone who's going to live for eternity in his kingdom. Let's choose a brand new identity today. Let's choose to take a hold of this new identity together. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for Jesus Christ who gives us a new identity for Jesus Christ, who gives us an identity that matters, that lasts, that goes with us beyond the grave, an identity that has more purpose and a higher calling than anything this world might define us as, anything this world, any identity that this world has to give. And God, I pray that we would all take a hold of the identity you want us to take a hold of. I pray, God, that there might be somebody that's joining us this morning that they've been in, they've been out, they've been struggling like Esther about whether, whether they're yours or they're the world's or they're their own's or they're their boyfriends or girlfriends. 
They've been struggling with who they are. God, I pray that maybe this morning you will help them make a decision to say, I'm all in with you. And I make that same decision for myself. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Everybody said together, amen. Well, I want to say thank you for joining me as we went through that teaching today. And, uh, and I look forward to seeing you grow, to seeing you become someone who truly takes a hold of the identity that God has for you. Well, I want to encourage you, if you're joining us here this morning and you'd like to continue uh, or, or you'd like to join us and support what we're doing as we put out these teachings, you're welcome to do that. You can do that at any time by going to www.vernonia.church and there uh, you, can, uh, you can decide that you can give to help support what we're doing. There's a give tab there. You can hit that give tab and and you can join us in giving. I want to make sure I say thank you to all of you who've been supporting Vernonia Church, who've been supporting the online ministry of Vernonia Church and these messages going out. Uh, I want to invite you to join us in doing that. You, you, can, you can do that also by texting the word GIVE to 503-376-6646. And if you text that, it'll bring up a Tithely account. And there you can set up giving to, uh, and you can do it in any way, shape or form you want with any amount you want to do. Uh, some people choose to do $1 a message, $1 a week, and, and every bit helps us uh, as, we, as we're doing this work together. And other people, they do it differently. But I do want to make sure I say a big thank you to those of you who are giving because your giving is making a difference. And we've been seeing this church and this outreach grow. We've been seeing people come to Christ and it's been awesome. Well, I want to encourage you, invite you to pray with me for the work of Vernonia Church for this online teaching that it would grow and that we would reach more people with it and that more people would come to know their identity in Christ because of it. Let's pray together for Vernonia Church. Father in heaven, we do pray for Vernonia Church. We pray that you would continue to work through this church, that you would continue to reach new people for Christ through this church. And we pray, God, that you would just bless Vernonia Church. We pray that you would bless all those who are connected with this church, that we would grow in our faith, that we would grow in our, uh, in our identity in you, that we would also see new people come to Christ because of what we're doing together. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I'd like to finish up our teaching time this morning by declaring it's been a great day. On the count of three, I'm going to yell out, it's been a great day, and you're welcome to join me in doing the same. Uh, one, two, three, it's been a great day. Hey, I hope you have a great day, and we'll see you next week.